0: Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and the very end of it. And here we have, which is not unusual for Jesus, some startling news about going into eternity, or what most people just like to think or talk about is going to heaven. We're just going to read the 13th and 14th verses, where Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. We have just come through, and I'm going to just review it in just a couple of minutes, the reality of eternity in this respect that it only has two destinations, heaven and hell, according to the Bible according to Jesus. But here Jesus says something even more startling and maybe concerning, is that the way that leads to heaven is narrow, the road once you're on it is difficult, and few find it. My family and I lived at one point in time for several years at 379 South Broadway in Yonkers. Just as a note of interest, Broadway, which starts at the very tip of Manhattan, doesn't finish until it reaches Albany. It's the longest street in the world, 150 miles. And at one point in time, my family and I lived right on that road, right on Broadway, 379 South Broadway. And just to use it as an illustration of all of our lives, there was a time when all of us lived on the Broadway, Now Broadway is not the widest street in the world, but the one that Jesus mentions here is the widest road in this life. There's no doubt that, and I'll say more from an emotional perspective, perhaps intellectual as well, there are many statements of Jesus that are somewhat difficult to understand and sometimes difficult simply to accept. But here, Jesus states the road that's leading to eternal destruction, which we know as hell, is very broad, and many, many people are on it. They're on that road with their religions. They're on that road with their philosophers. And what may even be a little bit more challenging to think about, they're on that road with some good works. It's good people, as we say good people. But then the Bible announces, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, what I would like to talk to you about today is both repentance and the narrow way. As I just mentioned, we at times, we all lived on the broad way. And then Jesus, at some point in your life, as well as my life, said, Follow me, come follow me. And maybe we didn't learn until sometimes afterward that this road in following Jesus is narrow and a difficult one to travel on for extended periods of time. I don't know that I completely understood that. In fact, I'm certain that I didn't. My own conceptions, somewhat helped out by a few teachers here or there, was that this was what some think it to be today. Everything from this point point on is just going to go well and smooth, and mostly to my liking. What I have discovered, and if you're following Christ, you're discovering it as well, is that it's not smooth, it's a rough road, fraught with difficulties, obstacles, temptations, all types of things, and its entrance is very narrow. I remember when I was uh, newly born again, my wife and I, before I was in the pastorate, being in a church service, like we just had a worship service here, a song service, and I remember just lifting up my hands and just simply worshiping. And while I was worshiping, I had this vision. The vision was, as you would see, a cleft in a rock, in a type of a sheer precipice, you know, just something that people would climb, maybe. And I saw this opening, very, very narrow. So we're singing the songs that day, whatever they were, and I have this vision in my mind, not knowing really what it meant at all. Later, the preacher, pastor at the time, got up and preached from this passage. Then I knew what that vision was that I saw. I'm not certain that even then I fully appreciated what I do appreciate now about the entrance into the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus said, I am the way, that that way is very restricted. And that's just to start. And then as you walk along, you find that this road has many twistings and turnings. For those of you who haven't read yet the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, that is a must read for the Christian, it's considered one of the greatest works of literature in the Western world. So many academic programs will include it not as a spiritual book, but just as a work of literature, or in this case, fiction. But as you know, John Bunyan, who spent over 12 years in prison for his beliefs, wrote this work as a long allegory of the Christian's life. I just want to read you a brief portion when the character known as Evangelist meets the character known as Christian as he's leaving the city of destruction. Christian is wondering which way is he supposed to go? How does he start? Where does he start? So Evangelist says to him, We make no objections against any, notwithstanding all that they have done before they came here. They are in no wise cast out. No way God casts them out once they come to this narrow opening. Therefore, good Christian, come a little with me and I will teach thee about the way you must go. Look before you. Do you see this narrow way? That is the way you must go. It was followed by the men of old prophets, Christ and his apostles, and it is as straight as a rule can make it. This is the way you must go. And Christian said, but are there no turnings or windings by which a stranger may lose his way? And Evangelist answers him, yes, there are many ways, but rely upon this, and they are crooked and wide, but you may distinguish the right from the wrong, the right only being straight and narrow. It paints a picture for us. In the words of the Puritan John Bunyan, You enter upon the entrance way, which by way of illustration is this way more than it is this way. You're squeezing through. And then after that, on this long path to the celestial city, we find many, many obstacles, many, many temptations, many, many things that get in our way. And again, if you've read The Pilgrim's Progress, you know how Bunyan illustrates them. And if you've not, that's a book that you must read. We enter in narrowly, but again, speaking for myself, the thing that tripped me up, mainly because I just wasn't aware of it, I was ignorant of it, was the fact that the road from here to the face of God has so many challenges, so many obstacles, and chiefly is the adversary whom we know as Satan or the devil. I may read to you later if time permits, from 1 Peter 5. that tells us to be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Then we're told to resist him steadfast in the faith. In another place, we're told that if we will resist him, he will flee. He will go. This is the walk of salvation. This is the road that leads to eternal life, or I should say, to the face of God. We are given the gift of eternal life. But the road is long and torturous. But the way we recognize it, it's always straight and narrow, so we don't take these detours. As you read in the book, many detours. We have a saying, sometimes we'll say to someone, just stay on the straight and narrow. That's what this is pointing out here. All the time, just staying on the straight and the narrow. As a preacher, it's rather easy and somewhat tempting, I would use the word tempting, to go off on different things that are much more entertaining than just instruction on how to stay faithful to Christ. Because let's face it, speaking about Christ's cross is fairly easy. Speaking about, I die daily. I am crucified with Christ. And having that experience come to pass in your own life. And sometimes it's not recognized. We see these challenges and difficulties, some of which are inspired by Satan. Some of which are tests of God to diminish our confidence in ourselves and diminish the confidence in our flesh. Either way, sometimes it's not recognized as the cross that Jesus talked about when the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I die daily. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may not be the gospel of other preachers and dominations and fellowships, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a narrow opening that leads us in and a hard road that we continue to walk on day by day. I would say this to you. If the road that you're on, you're not being challenged by Satan, you're not being tempted to go into the flesh or do things that God has said not to do, you should take some serious time to wonder if you're on the right road. Because that's the experience of every single person who comes to Christ. And it may not be, and thankfully I don't think that it is, every single day, but it's frequent. And I would submit to you, at least in my own experience, the older I get and the more I try to submit my will to God's will, thy will be done, the road seems to get more and more difficult. And why? Well, it's not only because we're fighting satanic powers and principalities that can be sometimes very subtle and other times very aggressive and overt in their attacks, but we're fighting ourselves. I mean the flesh. The flesh has been so thoroughly affected by sin that we don't even realize how much has been affected until you decide to live a life for Christ. And then all of a sudden your flesh, which is good by the way, God made your body good, but it's so been affected like a disease by sin that you find it rebelling against the spiritual walk. You want to lose your temper. You want to say things. You want to think things. You want to do things. And then we have the world all around us, which curiously is part of the reason why Puritans came here. Because as they tried to make society where they and their children could live 100% for the Lord, they were finding that where they went when they fled England, the world was seducing their children. And so they heard about the New World and decided to come here. This was the reason when you read about a city set on a hill. They were looking for a place where they could build a Christian community. Now, the operation didn't seem to turn out too terribly well, but that was the intent. The intent was to build a Christian community, to build a Christian country. I'm not saying this is true up and down the seaboard. I'm just saying for the Puritans. They came here to build a Christian country, not the whole country, but where they were. And that they would be able to show to the world that the biblical way is the way. But again, that didn't work out so well, at least not 100%. My point is this. We come to Christ for various reasons, whatever brought us to Christ. And there we learn that we have sinned before God. Thankfully, the penalty for sin has been paid. And it's there that we learn that we must repent. That's my subject for today. But before I get there, let me just review with you what I shared with you last week about God's teaching on hell, Jesus' is teaching on hell, just to read you a few verses I read to you last week. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 45 and 46, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. Now, Matthew 25, as I remind you all the time, is a continuation of Matthew chapter 24. Red lettering Bible will show that to you. It's all one sermon, all one speech. We talk so much about Matthew 24, but not enough about Matthew 25 where he's finishing off saying, okay, now that you know these things and when I will return and what it's going to be like, The whole theme in three parables of Matthew chapter 25 is practical righteousness. It's knowing Christians by their fruit, by their behavior. You're the salt of the earth, all of that. And for that, my dear friends, we have to be crucified with Christ. And it's not easy. It's simply not easy. Jesus said, inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into life eternal. Matthew chapter 10 at verse 28, Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is Jesus' teaching. Mark chapter 9 verse 43 through 48. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life, maimed, than having two hands, to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. And you can read the rest of that there where Christ repeats himself about the hand and the eye and the foot. Matthew thirteen, fifty, and shall cast him into the furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then of course we go over to the book of the Revelation, chapter twenty, verse fourteen, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And then back in Revelation 20 once more verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the teaching of Christ and the apostles. That there is a place called hell. For those of you who weren't here on Wednesday night, I shared with you these statistics from a secular source of how many people are dying every day, every hour, every minute, every second. So just to review very quickly, by the time I finish this message, which I always preach one hour, 7,000 people worldwide will have gone into eternity somewhere. Almost two people per second right now are entering into eternity. And let me say it this way as a kind of a rhetorical, tongue-in-cheek statement. If Jesus is really not the Son of God, and really he was pretty much out of his mind with some of his teachings and some of his deeds as well, not the healing part, but some of the other stuff that he did, wrecking the temple and all that, well then, we have reason to doubt that it's that. Serious. As for me, I have no doubt about Jesus. If Jesus says there's two ways, then there's only two ways. If Jesus said, many follow a broad way, an easy street, and those that follow me, then we have other analogies as take up your cross, deny yourself. Then we understand that the way to the celestial city to see the face of God is a narrow way. And Jesus said, few there be that find it. We have a decision to make. Do we believe what the world says and the philosophies and religions? Or do we believe what Jesus said? But one thing you can't do, and I caution you against it, don't mix in this. There's a severe warning in the scriptures in Deuteronomy and Revelation. It's also found in Proverbs. Never add to God's word. In the book of the Revelation in particular, he said, if you add to the words of the prophecy of this book, I will add to you the plagues that are in it. Then diminishing God's word, taking away from God's word, same thing. is a severe warning. Things that we should take seriously. You don't add to God's book. You don't take away from God's book. You have only one decision. You believe it or you don't. That's it. So we have this call from Christ to enter a narrow, narrow passage. I showed you or explained to you a vision I had of it myself many years ago, squeezing myself through this way, and have now by experience seen what the scriptures said, that the road is simply not an easy one to travel because it's not the broad way. It's not, you know, look, it's a whole lot easier not to live for Christ because basically you can do whatever you want. You can say what you want, think what you want. But what Jesus teaches is that the consequence is very, very severe. You are free to choose to do whatever you want to do, but you're not free from the consequences. That's a very wise statement. I don't believe it came from a Christian source. It was just simply saying that you you can do what you want to do, but the law of sowing and reaping works for everybody. Nobody escapes it. Here in chapter 7, if you look at the first verse, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. That means by the standard that we judge other people, that's the standard that will be used for us. Here's another verse for you. He shall be judged without mercy, who has shown no mercy. I want to just say this as a little exhortation here. One of the temptations that we face as Christians is that once we're born again and saved and we have this assurance is we start to look down on people who don't have Christ. We start to treat them as though they are some lower caste and we are the upper caste. When you should know the only difference between them and us is that we accepted Christ and are forgiven. That's it. We were every bit as sinful as our friends and family and neighbors and whoever else. In many cases, or at least some cases, we're worse And how much more? You do not want to find yourself in a place of pharisaical hypocrisy. Because someone's going to be out there smart enough who knew you to remember the day when you were not what you are now. And you don't want to find yourself in that place when you stop loving the brethren. Because let's face it, you know we're not all alike here, except in one respect, we're all saved. And I assume it's all. But otherwise, we're so diverse in our interests and our personalities, our way of looking at things, and so on and so forth, our tastes, that Jesus has to command us love one another. Love one another. During the First Great Awakening, one of the premier figures God used, along with John Wesley, of course, there was Jonathan Edwards as well, the theologian and pastor, was George Whitfield. Whitfield was actually brought up in the theater became born again, became a preacher. And he would preach in the fields, 4.30 in the morning, preach on the steps of Liberty Hall there in Philadelphia, massive crowds, and a great revival took place, a great awakening in the 18th century, 1700s, between the preaching of John Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and of course there's always more, but these are the ones that stick out. On the subject of repentance, I want to give you some of his thoughts. This is George Whitfield. He said this on repentance. Our sorrow and grief for sin must not spring merely from a fear of wrath. For if we have no other ground but that, it proceeds from self-love and not from any love to God. And if love to God is not the chief motive of your repentance, your repentance is in vain. Not to be esteemed true. Let me say it to you this way. Parents... You may have had a child or two that has been caught doing something that's not right, either the rules of your house or just morally and ethically, and they sincerely don't want to be punished. And they promise you they will not do this again. But the motive is not that they have hurt you as a parent. The motive is not that they hurt the family, the community, maybe in the case of the church they attend and so on. The motive is purely that they don't want to be punished. That's it. That's what Whitfield is saying. If love to God is not the chief motive of your repentance, your repentance is in vain and not to be esteemed true. Now, this is 1700s. Many in our days think they are crying, God, forgive me, or Lord, have mercy upon me, or I am sorry for it, is repentance, and that God will esteem it as such. But indeed, they are mistaken. It is not the drawing near to God with our lips, while our hearts are far from him which he regards. Repentance does not come by fits and starts, No, it is one continued act of our lives. For as we daily commit sin, so we daily repent before God. Notice the word daily. Repentance is not something we did one time. That was it. It's continuing to go before God. As we did here at the communion service, a continual examination, because you're always going to find the flesh. Then, of course, there's Satan. The thoughts in the mind, the temptations, the impulses and other things that go against the life of Christ of whom we sang, May I Be Like Him. I want to just offer you a suggestion about Christian music. I think that it should be the best that it could be, musically speaking, but I think there should be more thought put into what is it exactly that we're saying. Make me more like you? Well, what are we talking about? Gentleness? That's good. His peace at all times? That's good. And that is part of it. But what about his sufferings? What about his rejection? What about people who just didn't like him because they just didn't like him? Are the things that he said? You see, that's all part of it. Do you want to be like him? No, that's the commandment of scripture, but do you want to be like him? You don't take one without the other. It's all, it's everything. And so, Whitfield went on to say, again, I repeat, repentance does not come by fits and starts. No, it is one continued act of our lives. For as we daily commit sin, so we need a daily repentance before God to obtain forgiveness from those sins we commit. Finney went further. Finney suggested that you should name those sins, not just say, oh, God, forgive me, you know, I know I'm a sinner, but to name them, whatever it was, adultery, alcohol, drug addiction, uh, hatred of the brethren. That's a serious one, more serious than people think. Because I mentioned this to you, I think, last week. Any man that hates his brother is this Christian fellowship we're talking about. Any man that hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. These are hard sayings. But both prudence and intelligence demands that we deal with these texts because they're coming from Jesus and they're coming from the uh, apostles of Christ. He went on to say this. This is Whitfield again speaking. It is not your confessing yourselves to be sinners. It is not knowing your condition to be sad and deplorable so long as you continue in your sins. Your care and endeavors should be to get the heart thoroughly affected therewith. That you may feel yourselves to be lost and undone creatures. For Christ came to save such as are lost and to enable to groan under the weight and burden of your sins. Then Christ will ease you and give you rest. Here, Whitfield is speaking about as you draw close to God through prayer and the word and obedience, you start to realize how burdened you are by this sin. Sin's plural. You know, I have a clock in the bedroom. I told you that it plays amazing grace every hour on the hour. But it is on a photo timer. So in other words, if the curtains are drawn, the room is dark, it won't go off. And I just learned by observation, the brighter the light on this photo cell, the music plays loud. But if the light on the photo cell is not as bright, then the music is lower. If there's just a hint of light, mostly dark, it can play so low that you can barely recognize it. I will submit to you that our lives are like that. The more we entertain sin and excuse it and say, well, you know, I'm weak and this is the way I am, when we know it's a violation of God's word, our testimony is dim. It is weak. It is ineffective. If you were to hear my clock playing with the photo cell completely illuminated by the sunshine or the light, that's how my nightstand is playing very loud, very clear, and there's no doubt about what song is on there. Amazing grace. But when the light is very, very dim, you can hardly distinguish what it is. Is it a chime or what is it? And Jesus taught us to put these things away so that your light would so shine that men would know. Now, this is a question for you to think about. How clearly are you identified in the community and in your family, wherever you go, as being a Christian? And it's just something to think about. We don't sing as much in churches any longer, the hymns. But there's a great little, I think, a statement that we can make about this. You see, for years and years, many people went to the church and they knew all the hymns, but not everybody knew him. And so we see this in, well, I say primarily in the South. It doesn't have to be the South. Country music is where I see it. More often than not, they like the gospel hour and they like to sing these songs, these songs of salvation. But then we know, some of them at least, we know that their lives are anything but lined up with the songs they're singing. They know the hymns, and they can put out a more sonorous singing of the hymns than probably most churches, not all churches, but most churches. But they're not identified with him. They don't know him. And I'll say something else, too. In my own experience, from my own point of view, I can see and hear a sense, intuitive sense of difference between someone singing a hymn who doesn't know him and someone singing a hymn that knows him. It's that anointing that the world cannot receive. Jesus taught us that doesn't know it as the one that leads us and guides us. Let me finish with Whitfield On repentance, he says, until you are thus sensible of your misery and lost condition, you are a servant to sin and to your lusts. Under the bondage and command of Satan, doing his drudgery, thou art under the curse of God and liable to his judgment. Consider how dreadful thy state will be at death and after the day of judgment. So this is bringing us back to the doctrine of hell. When thou wilt be exposed to such miseries, which the ear hath not heard, neither can the heart conceive, and that to all eternity, if you die impenitent. This was one of the great leaders of the first great awakening in our country. And it's not so much that I say, oh, we need that type of preaching again. Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards, Finney, others, Billy Sunday in the 20th century, others they were simply preaching the gospel. That's it. The book hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. If we're going to have conversion in our communities and in our country and all this, we need the gospel. We need what Jesus said. We cannot be trying to please people by mitigating what Jesus said. It's almost an apology for Jesus. It's almost being embarrassed of what he said. So we said, well, you know, you've got to understand what he meant. I'll give you a quote maybe at the end, but I'll give it to you now from Arthur Pink, who was one of the most influential writers in the early part of the 20th century. And the last thing that he said as he was dying, the scriptures explain themselves. If you read it, you know what it's saying. I'm not saying you don't need a preacher and a teacher. You do, because the scriptures say so. But when you read it, it's there. You can see it. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way, that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, And few there be that find it. See, the scriptures explain themselves. You understand what that means when you read it. But people can go home and read their Bible and understand it and actually get confused because the preacher doesn't say that. And then they figure to themselves, well, he or she knows more than me. When in reality, you're not missing it. It's being missed in the pulpits. Repent, Jesus said, and believe the gospel. We hear a lot of emphasis today about believe, which is appropriate. But it's preceded by another word called repent. Matthew chapter 3 verse 2. He came and saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4 17. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew eleven twenty, 20. Then began he to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. So we have Jesus doing good works regardless of what people do. But then a rebuke, a severe rebuke. Matthew 11:21. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Everyone appreciates the healing ministry of Jesus, but it's still not the primary point of the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Matthew 12:41. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented of the preaching of Jonas and behold, the greater than Jonas is here. You remember the story of Jonah. He is a reluctant prophet. He does not want to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh, mainly because he knows that God is merciful. Now, this is odd, you may say, but taking it from the point of view of a Jew whose country has been persecuted by the Assyrians, he does not want to go. Because his intuition tells him, if he goes and preaches repentance, they'll repent and God will be merciful to them. So he goes and dives overboard and all this, and this great fish, a whale, whatever it was, to take him and spit him up on the shore. And when he preaches to Nineveh, they repent, and so much so in sackcloth and ashes that they even cover the animals in sackcloth. And God has mercy on them. And then Jonah is depressed because he had a revival. This is very strange. But I will say to you this, And this is something I repeat fairly often. Here in America, we are so politically polarized, in the Christian community as well. Well, he's a communist, and he needs to be saved. He's a socialist, they're dangerous people, but they need to be saved. Because God puts no he's not a respecter of persons. I'm not advocating joining them, I'm advocating praying for them, that they may come to Christ, they may know the savior, but that's, I was talking about the people on the left. I think we better pray for a whole lot of people on the right, from what I'm reading. Uh, that's I'm telling you the truth. I'm pretty much not a centrist, but I have difficulties believing both sides. In any case, I have no difficulty believing Christ. Amen. People need Jesus. Amen. And we have to be in that place that we're not like Jonah to see the wrong people having a revival. While the right people are not having a revival. In other words, the good old boys that we hang around with, they're doing what they've always done against the instructions of Jesus. And these people over here, whom we do not like, are all of a sudden coming to Christ. I don't know that that really speaks for many of you. I think we would all be happy, but there are some who just don't want to see that. In any case, it's the word repent. The word repent, metanoia, means to change your mind. It's a turning of the mind. So you're headed this way. You're on the broad way. God says to you, if you stay on this way, you will never see me. And what you will see is so unspeakably horrible that I've not even put it in all its details in my book. And so we believe that. As I said, this is repentance. You make a turn. We've had to do this sometimes when we've followed wrong directions and say, I'm past my destination. I've got to turn around and go back. And we turn to the cross. As we approach the cross, then we hear the words, now repent. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Well, what's this? That's not what the preacher never told me that. All he just says is say this little prayer. No, it's a whole lot more than saying a little prayer. Someone says, give your life to Christ. But is it explained what giving your life away means? Not just your time, not just your talents, everything about you from the time you get up to the time you go to bed. Your life. You gave your life to Christ. And he says, repent. And then we turn away from those things that we know are displeasing to God. And you can start with the more gross and obvious ones, you know, the drunkenness and the adulteries, the fornications and all that, drugs, gambling, whatever it is, but it's here in deep. The way we think, and then eventually the way we speak. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the gospel message. Before belief, well, actually it's combined with belief, it's like a coin. You repent and believe at the same time because you believe what Christ is saying. The way is narrow and the road is difficult to travel, but we travel it anyway, like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. And before you know it, we're miles and miles beyond the cross, but not without bearing our scars not because we have the same difficulties as everybody else, because we do, but our scars come specifically because we have dedicated ourselves to Christ. Satanic animosity, I think, is on the rise. And it will come against every single person who is truly born of the Spirit of God because Satan hates God. And he hates you and me because we're made in his image. I mean, if you hate your enemy, you hate their kids. You hate the whole family, especially the one boy or the one girl who looks like the one that you hate. I mean, physically looks like it. And so this is just part of the process, and we must accept it and do our duty. Let me talk to you about the narrow way. Let's read a few verses here that we just read. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, our opening verses. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Let me just read to you from Luke chapter 13, verse 24, where we have another statement of Jesus along the same lines. Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. Why is that? Well, Bunyan wrote about no one that comes here is rejected, so it's not that. It's that they're going to seek to see the face of God, but when they find out, they have to squeeze through this narrow, narrow opening and that the path is rough. They're going to invent another way to get to God, and it's just an invention. You have been tricked, who knows how many occasions from your youth till now, by your imagination. You imagined something, whatever it may be. It could be a million things. You imagined it, do need to find out sometime later in the process of time, weeks or months or whatever, it was just an imagination. You were wrong. And you cannot let your imagination take you away from the plain teaching of the Bible. Straight is the gate. This word here has always fascinated me when we read the word straight. As you know, the New Testament is written in Greek or was written in Greek. And the word for straight in Greek is stenos. We have it in our English language as a transliteration. I mean, it's literally translated through Greek to what we call stenotic. This is used primarily in cardiology when we say, well, there's a narrowing in the opening of your arteries. And the technical term is they're stenotic. And Jesus said that the way that leads to hell is very broad. But the way that leads to heaven is stenotic. And that's what that word straight means. It's a narrow space. When I think of something narrow, it just came to my mind now is uh, taking an MRI. I remember once them putting me into an MRI for something they were checking out. And as I was you know, going backward, as they put me back, my shoulders were being squeezed up against the side. And they usually you know, have a mask on you as well, and they usually play a little music. What kind of music do you like? I like classical. They never turned the music on, nor the air conditioning. So there I was, and I was squeezed up against the side. The top of the machine is right here, and I'm starting to sweat. Now, some people have claustrophobia. And little and by little, I can feel that panicky feeling. Now, I don't have claustrophobia. Any case, I've had several of those. And I think it stands as something you can picture as stenotic. Let me say this to you very kindly, very respectfully. If you're finding living as a Christian is very, very easy, you should start to think about, are you on the right road? Because the scriptures point out clearly that anyone who's truly living for God is not going to have an easy time of it now. But the consequence, so to speak, at the other end is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Or so much so that the Apostle Paul would say, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's the end of this life of Christ. The other way, it was easier all along the way. Your friends party, you party. You party, your friends party. You don't like the person you're with, you switch partners to do whatever you want. But the end of that is not good. There's a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof is the ways of death. Narrow versus broad. One more time, let me just simply say to you, if you're on the narrow way, you know it. You know it. The satanic oppression, the thoughts that come, the temptations, those little subtle thoughts that just just compromise just a little bit. And we all know that when we live for Christ. And in many ways, it's actually a good sign. When we first arrived here in 1987, and not long into the tenure of my pastorate, As I was preaching, people were coming to Christ. They were just coming to Christ, and church was filling up. People were traveling distances, as some of you do now, long distances to come hear the message. And first of all, I used to get more anonymous letters from my own congregation. What a lousy pastor I was, so I was no good at this, you're no good at that. And then I knew I'm hitting the mark. I'm hitting the mark. I'm stirring up the good old boys, and most of them were good old girls, girls club. Just shaking the tree and see what's running out. Yeah. But that wasn't my point. My point, I just was simple. I still am a simple person. I'm just preaching the gospel. I didn't expect the revival that we had back in those days. I didn't expect the animosity from the good old boys club. One day, I went down to the office. My wife was home. The phone rang. It was for me. The person on the other end in a very gravelly, demonic type of voice referred to the pastor who had left. And he was kind of a, well, forgive me for my judgment. He kind of a good old boy. People could do what they want, he just kind of loved them. I love people enough to tell them, that's wrong. That's gotta stop, that's wrong. So the voice on the other end said to my wife, we love the other preacher more than we love you. <laughs> a phone call was designed for me. My wife was so frightened, she called me up and she told me what had happened. She told me what the person on the other end of the line said. And I said to her, I said, oh, praise God, we're making a mark. She thought I was crazy. I said, "We just lock the windows, lock the door. I'll be home a little bit later. She was really shaken. And from that time, I could tell you stories of the animosity that came out of my own congregation. From the inside, all types of stuff, all types of crazy stuff. But it was an indication then, and I can say now, that that's how you know the Bible's real. It's not just the good things, the blessings. Because let's face it, there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of money and cars and homes, and they don't acknowledge Christ. But when you see the animosity that come against a life, your life, my life, anybody's life, that's serving Christ, the way I look at it is I roll it, I flip it, I say, this is what Christ talked about. This is what Christ dealt with. Demonic possession in people, demonic oppression, could be the most simplest things. And you know this. So let me go to Arthur Pink now. And I just mentioned that he was one of the most prolific and influential writers of the, well, the early part of the 20th century. He was born in the 19th century and he wrote these words about repentance, and I want to read them to you. I hope it has a great effect on your mind. Why does God tell us to repent? We always say Jesus accepts you as you are. That's certainly true. It is true. But then begins the process of change. And that's part of the message, the biggest part of the message, that's being left off today. Come to Christ, say this prayer. How many of you come forward, walk forward, stand up, whatever. But you got to tell the people, but from this point on, things are going to change, and I'm going to work on you, and it won't be easy. Arthur Pink wrote these words about repentance. Pay attention, close attention to this. So high are the demands of the three times holy one. We read that last week, holy, holy, holy. So uncompromising are the requirements of his ineffable means, too great for words, his ineffable character. His character, in other words, is so great you can't even express it in words. To be with him eternally, who do not in this world loathe, resist, and turn from all that is repulsive to his pure eye, nothing short of the complete denying of self, the abandoning of the dearest idol, the forsaking of the most cherished sinful course, figuratively represented under the cutting off of the right hand, that we read that in Mark 9, and plucking out of a right eye is what he claims from everyone who would have communion with himself. Every week when we come to the communion supper, sometimes I read it, many times I just quote it, we're told to examine ourselves. And not just to say, oh yeah, there it is, but to say, God, this has got to go. This thought life, this expression, this manner of behavior, this whatever it is, it's got to go. That's called repentance. And why? Because the scriptures say this in Old and New Testaments, be ye holy, for I am holy. So we're told to turn and this i think is what makes this road so narrow and then the road gets rough because let's face it there are so many times when we think about turning back in pilgrim's progress in bunyan's story that temptation is given to christian in the book Every christian oh the good old days you know when we just do this that and the other thing well think harder about the good old days they weren't all that great if they were we wouldn't be christians today we wouldn't have came now here's the thing Is this God, is this Christ worthy of your greatest endeavors? You know, I I want to say to you, you've put away the big sins, the adultery and all the whatever else you've put away. But what about the little foxes? I mean, when my wife and I first met, when we first met, we were together every single day. And I remember one time back in the days when we actually did walk everywhere. I walked to her house and it was in a snowstorm. Now the snow was starting to get high, but just to be with her was the reward. And so when I remember coming in the door, her father said to me, he said, you came here in a storm? Aren't you crazy? <laughs> and I didn't say so in words, but I said, no, I'm in love with your daughter. <laughs> well, I just saw her yesterday, and i see her the day after. But that, well, see, that's what love does. And I think that if we can bestow that type of love on a human being, it may actually explain when we behave the way we do that we really haven't yet got the concept of this great God. That if it's a snowstorm or it's whatever, it's worth it because we're going to pursue God with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. Repentance and the narrow way, we must accept it. Many will not. Many will profess that they are Christians and you get into... I don't get into debates. I don't want to debate. Just want to know this is what the scriptures say. Accept it or you don't. Let me take you here and I'll finish this morning because I was meditating in 1 Peter chapter 5 For a couple of nights in a row, because I found some things very engaging. In the seventh verse, it tells us to cast all our care upon him, for he cares for us. That was the verse I was looking at. Then I was interested enough to study the verses around it. And the Lord just began to really open my eyes. First of all, in verse 6, 1 Peter 5, it says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So there's the necessity of humility. As Socrates taught, when he once had the reputation as being the smartest man in the world, or wisest man in the world, he said that it was because he knew that he didn't know. And if you're a reader, and I've been a lifelong reader of the Bible and other books, the more I learn, I'm actually embarrassed to admit, the more I don't know. So I anticipate questions that will come from you and maybe how I would answer that. But I am humbled by how much I don't know about the Bible. And I've been at it a long time. And then casting all your care. The word care means to be kind of pulled apart. It comes from a root word. It means to be pulled in every direction. And one of the things the enemy wants to do is constantly distract us. D- listen, do not do this. And this is a real exhortation. Don't be reading the Bible while the radio's going and the TV's going. Turn it off. It's going to distract you. And pay attention to God. It's really good advice on anything you're doing, but particularly with God. This merinda, the Greek word means to be pulled in different directions. In other words, you're distracted. That's what that word for anxiety means or care. But then he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, is walking about. Don't think that he doesn't visit his church. He does. He'll visit your home. He'll visit your family. Of course he visits your mind. But what is he looking for? He's looking for someone he could snatch. Somebody he could take out of the way. Somebody he can convince that. You don't have to walk the way that preacher talks. He don't even know what the scriptures say. Well, the new versions say this. It's a broad road that leads to destruction. That's what it says. And anyway, the devil is walking about all the time, looking for whom he may devour. And then it says, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And we have many people watching from many, many countries around the world now. And I look at some of their pictures, some of your pictures, and I see the conditions of the hospitals, of the children, the orphanages, and all that. Everyone has their own type of affliction. We in America have our own type of affliction, believe it or not. the One, I think, is even more dangerous, that it would draw us away from Christ. Anyway, it says that we have to resist him in the faith because this affliction is being accomplished. See what it's saying about Christians? It's everywhere. If you're a true Christian, you're getting put through the ringer. But listen to this one here. But The God of all grace, who has called you unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Listen to this. This is what I wasn't expecting when I was doing a little exegesis. I remembered the verse but as I pulled it apart. After you have suffered a while. Huh. This is the United States of America. You don't suffer. Preachers aren't going to talk about suffering. But if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer to some degree. Listen, though. After you have suffered a while, make you perfect. Establish, strengthen you, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We don't like this narrow way. We don't like the pressures it puts on us. We don't like the restrictions it puts on us. But that's how it is. And in the end, we're being perfected. The predestination of God is this, to be conformed to the image and likeness of his son. And if you look close enough at your life, I look at myself, I look at others, I find that not the temptations as much as the testings are really suited to the things in them that have to change. In other words, they're not arbitrary. I'm going through something, you say, wow, that bothers you? And I say the same to you. That you're going through this, oh, don't worry about that, don't bother. Me. But you see, the cross, it's tailored to your particular needs. The nails of the cross, as they go in, they drive deep and cause pain. But the pain of Christ is like a surgeon's knife. The surgeon cuts skillfully and carefully, very sharp, to go in and heal. Whereas Satan's knife is designed to kill you. Jesus' knife, both are painful. Both will cut your skin, cut your organs. Christ's knife looks like this. And you can't avoid it. And he's going in and taking out everything that doesn't belong to him. I must admit to you, I don't like this doctrine, but I accept it. And you must accept it too. I am certain that God is speaking to you in your individual lives, and some of you are not responding. That's not what you want. That's not good change this. And sometimes it's just that little fox. It's not a big thing. It's a little thing. Oh, yo. And you don't. God would not be speaking to you about changing things in your life if it was not important both to him and to you. So what do we do with this that's before us? What do we do? I suggest that you understand that to obey is better than to do sacrifice. We need the tithes and the offerings and the money and all that business, but to obey God is better than all the money in the world that you could give the good works or whatever you do around the church here and all that to obey god is what he's really looking for because it's not good for him for us to obey him it's good for us are you on the narrow way are you walking on a road that is difficult at least at times and if you are keep in mind the end it's full of glory and as i'm here standing in front of you we want to do what we see mostly in the old testament is make an altar An altar had no purpose except for something had to die. And you know, and I'm confident that you know, what God is speaking about to your life today. And he's saying, this must die, must die. And the process of dying is sometimes painful, but it gets worse if you're fighting it. My thing is, when I got to go through something painful, let's just get it over with. What are you fighting today? I mean, what are you fighting today that's against the will of God, that God's trying to say, this is going to die in your life. I'm going to ask you to take that thing, whatever it may be, and put it on your little altar that's there in your lap, if you can see it. You take out your knife. You drive that knife right through this idol. It could be your temper. It could be your pornography. It could be many, many things. And say, yes, Lord. Will it be easy? No. Will it be painful? Yes. But in the end, will it produce the fruit of the spirit? Absolutely. Don't resist God. It's not a good idea. Father, we bow our hearts and we bow our heads before you today because what we have just heard is the gospel, not the invention of men, not the cleverness and wisdom of men, not the manipulation of men. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Only you know what my friends and brothers and sisters, those watching by way of the television, those listening by way of the radio, only you know what they're saying to you right now that they know you've been speaking to them about. Give both them and us the courage to do things your way and no longer do them our way, making excuses for why we haven't changed on this narrow road and through this straight gate. But rather help us to endure to the end. You said those that endure to the end shall be saved. Help us to remember what that word means and to bless your name. Once again, God, only you know who today is putting something or many things on the altar and driving a knife right through it. Say, God, this has got to die. You've told me, I know, and today, Lord, I make this altar. Whatever that habit is, whatever that thought pattern is, and see it the way it is. Oh, God, once again, only you know what people are putting on the altar that has to die. Once we let this thing die, Lord, help us to turn our backs on it, walk away, and keep going forward. Give us the courage. Give us that strength that we need in this hour of history. As we see, your coming is very, very close. I pray, God, that everybody that's watching or listening would have you as their Savior. As they approach the narrow way, they go through it and stay on the road, always because it's straight and narrow, and that's how we know we're on the right road. It's difficult. We bless you. We praise you. We give you glory, and we give you honor. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. Let's stand up this morning, and let's take a moment. Let's give God the praise. Bless your name O God. We bless your name, O God. We bless your name. We bless your name. Great is the Lord. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, and I'm gonna mention it to you again, the chastening of the Lord. When I go before the Lord and I know when I'm being chastened and disciplined by Him, I give Him thanks and I always say to myself or to God that you only discipline, rebuke, and chasten the ones you love. Amen. It's a good sign. It's a bad sign if you're not being disciplined, you say, Well, everything's great. Not good. It's not good. No, you want to be able to say thank you, Lord, for your discipline and your chastening and your rebuke. Because you only rebuke and chasten those that you love. Be zealous, therefore, he says, and repent. Help us to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. And also help us to love one another. Life will become a bit sweeter if we do. Help us to remember each other in prayer. We give you all the praise. give you all the glory. We give you all the honor today in Jesus' mighty name. Let everybody say amen. 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 Amen.